Today on What the Hack with Adam Levin, discover how to better protect yourself from becoming a victim by understanding your weaknesses, the often surprising tactics used by scammers, and her useful advice from Kathy Stokes, the Director of Fraud Prevention at the AARP. The AARP released a new report exposing how criminals steal billions of dollars annually using gift cards, cryptocurrency, and peer-to-peer -peer apps. It also speaks to the misconception around who is getting scammed. The report also highlights that Americans believe that fraud has reached a crisis level. I know, I believe that. Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. Kathy Stokes, you're a nationally recognized leader in the consumer fraud area, and you are director of fraud prevention programs with the AARP. So how long have you been with the AARP? Well, officially as a full-time employee, 2016 was when I joined, but I had my own communication consulting business for a decade. And, and you became director of fraud prevention in what year for them? I was the interim in 2018 and uh, formally took the director role in 2019. So what are some of the things that you do in that position and that, that your team does for AARP? So the program we, we run nationally is called the AARP Fraud Watch Network. Uh, it's been in uh, existence in various forms for many years. In fact, we, we have state offices all around the country and four or five of the states created the Fraud Watch Network themselves. Uh, they really wanted to get out there and educate, and they wanted to do advocacy on fraud prevention. And it ended up turning into a national program in 2013, but it was really all about just ads for awareness. Uh, and the organization really realized that we could do a lot more uh, with the spend and with our resources if we turned it into an educational program. So that's what happened in 2018. And now we, we, my team is divided. Um, we have basically fraud prevention on one end and fraud victim support on the other. And then sort of overarching all of that has to do with, you know, the big societal change that we want to see. But on the education front, we have um, probably at least thousands of volunteers around the country that work with our state offices. They're in community spreading the message of fraud prevention. We have great uh, resources at aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. We do webinars, we do town halls, we have fraud covered in our uh, AARP bulletin and the magazine, which is 38 million subscribers. So we have a broad reach and we use every channel possible. We also have a podcast, The Perfect Scam, that I know you guys know of. Uh, host Bob Sullivan, a really fantastic look behind the scenes of fraud, but focusing really on the human impact of it. Bob is amazing. I love Bob's work. I am hoping uh, to find out from you right now what the culture shift is, though, because I feel like that is key to a lot of what we talk about in the realm of online scams and crime. Well, absolutely. You know, when in 2019, when my team formally came together, we worked with uh, the folks who do victim support. They have a helpline. They get four or 500 calls a day. Uh, to help people who've experienced fraud or aren't sure about something. And we were all talking about what we wanted to do, what the big changes were that we could make as a team. And it came up at that time that every time a volunteer takes a, a call from a, a victim or a victim's family member, it's all about what is wrong with that victim. 
Why did they get duped? Why were they swindled? Why did they fall for it? Lots of family turmoil, lots of self-blame, really, really um, negative impact on people's lives, to say the least. And it starts with blame the victim. So we produced the paper. It's called Blame and Shame in the Context of Financial Fraud. And the gist of it is, yep, we do blame and we blame at every level of society. But, and here's the but, we don't really mean it. It's just that we're so used to using language that, you know, the, the, the swindler is, is uh, you know, so conniving and, and sophisticated and, wow, isn't it cool that he, he was able to pull this off? And, and the victim as old person, not tech savvy, fell for it because of cognitive decline, all these assumptions that are just that, assumptions. So we've been working toward getting the word out in many, many venues, thank you for this one, to help people understand that it is not the victim's fault. Let's talk more about that report. What else did it find? More than half, maybe even two-thirds of Americans believe that fraud is at a crisis level. They also believe that um, everybody should be reporting this because it's a crime, but they also recognize that, that there's almost no point because law enforcement isn't doing anything. Why do you think that is? Why is law enforcement kind of being so passive in the face of a crisis? Well, part of it comes from blaming victims. Um, If we can point to a reason that that victim um, is responsible for the fraud, then we can just sort of brush it off. And now that there's such great understanding that a lot of this fraud begins in a country far, far away, right? The pat response from law enforcement, federal and local, is, you know, they're they're overseas, we're not going to get them. Which is better than saying, well, uh, you gave them your money willingly. We can't help you. Well, it's it's pretty darn close. And I <laughs> definitely fit the 81% in that report who think it's a major, major, major problem. Here's the thing, though. With all due respect to some of my own friends in law enforcement, they can be incredibly dismissive about this. And it's a mixture of the attitude could be you should have known better because, you know, Cops really do have that sort of like, hey, I got mugged in that neighborhood. Well, don't go in that neighborhood attitude. And, you know, we're all in what Adam and I like to call the worst neighborhood in the world, which is the Internet. (laughs) So (laughs) I I think that there's, you know, is that just what they're saying is like, let's, you know, call Interpol. It's not our problem. Well, local law enforcement, if they even do anything, they'll say, well, that's a civil matter. Take it up with a lawyer. And that's not true. It is also a crime. And they should at least take a report, for goodness sakes. Yeah, but part of the reason why law enforcement does that, too, is because law enforcement, unfortunately, is under-resourced, under-trained, and under-supported when it comes to even dealing with this. Most law enforcement people don't understand what this thing is. That's exactly right. There are financial crimes investigators across the country at the local, state, federal level. They get it. Um, but most other don't. And yes, it's absolutely um, underfunded because it's deprioritized. But if you even just get a sense of what's happening out there, you know, in the UK, they readily admit that the number one crime in their society is fraud. 
we have the same situation, but nobody will ever look at it that way. We don't collect data to, to necessarily prove it. But if we have the, the biggest crime happening and we're doing nothing really virtually from a law enforcement's perspective, we've got to do something to reprioritize. It requires a whole new approach to going after these uh, transnational crime rates. How much of this issue do you uh, attribute to a lack of awareness? Well, I think everybody has come to know that it's a, a really big problem. Um, I mean, that that is borne out in in the release we just did. But what the awareness, the, the, the lack of awareness uh, is in the space of how it happens and why it's so successful. I would say 99% of the time, if I ask somebody do you think that older adults are victimized more often from fraud than younger adults? That absolutely, the answer is absolutely yes. There's always people talking about the problem with fraud against older adults. Well, the reality is younger people experience fraud more often and fraud losses. However, when it's that older victim, they lose so much more money because they tend to have the assets that a 23-year-old won't. So what is, what is it about older people who are more credulous when it comes to being asked to pay for something with a gift card like for real like you adam you would never fall for it travis you would never fall for it kathy you would never do that there are certain um payment types and fraud types that do affect uh certain generations right um and the perhaps the gift card payment one is is more common among older adults but it's not just older adults that that fall victim to this but one of the problems is we don't have good data. The data that we do have, though, does suggest that, you know, there's a fraud for everybody. But the report was done for AARP. Does this mean that it mostly focuses on seniors? It's everybody. We do nationally representative surveys when we do them. We do breakouts for the 50 plus because that's our target audience. But the data are collective across the country. It represents everybody. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions. And that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? 
Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. So based on your experience, is there any particular scam that you're aware of that just would blow our minds? There is one that would blow most people's minds. It's referred to in a term that I will not repeat, but it is what I will call a financial grooming scam akin to a romance scam. But in this particular case, it began in Cambodia and now it's it's spreading across to other countries, but you may get an, a text, looks like an error, like, hey, Sammy, are we getting together for drinks tonight? And, you know, if you're a nice person, you're going to say, hey, this isn't Sammy. And that is all the criminal needs to begin to engage with you. And then a relationship builds, and it could be weeks, it could be months, and then it could be, hey, all these great things I've shown you about my lifestyle, you can have them too if you invest in crypto with me. Mm. And the losses are profound. You know, they're hitting people with wealth and they are just, they're destroying generational wealth with this crime. And too few people understand that this is happening, but it also involves human trafficking. What? The people that are making the phone call, sending the text, going online with fake social media profiles are enslaved. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder why it's not called victim grooming because that's what it is. It's called what it's called, and, and I have conversations all over LinkedIn with people on this. Everybody that uses it acknowledges it, it that it's a terrible term, and it really it denigrates the victim so yeah. badly. Yeah. But the people that are using it say that's what gets, people, gets people's attention. Others are saying, well, that's what the criminals themselves are calling it. You know, in my book, I never follow what a criminal does to suggest what I should do in a particular arena, uh, I think it's absolutely horrible. And it gets to the narrative change in me, right? When you speak about victims and victimization, you're also, there's a lot of misconceptions about it, right? And in terms of which age groups, how they're impacted, because a lot of people go, you know, I'm a senior and a lot of people go, oh yeah, well, you guys fall for everything. The answer is, Look at the look at the numbers. You may be surprised. The numbers that we have, and if you look, that sort of the best representative sample, I guess it's not even a sample though, is the Federal Trade Commission's Consumer Sentinel data book every year. And they have it online and they update it quarterly, which is really cool. But it's only representing people who've actually reported fraud. And so many people do not because of the shame, because of not knowing where to go because of trying and failing, all of these reasons, 
but it does give you a sense of what's happening out there. And in that data, you can see that it's a younger person's problem as much as an older person's problem. However, it's the big losses that are happening at the older person's level that we are so concerned about. How do the uh, tactics in these uh, scams differ based on the age range? Well, you know, there's actually a really good report I'm going to send to you. Javelin Strategy and AARP do uh, a, a work every year on identity fraud, and they're able to, and identity fraud through scams, and they're able to, to show how some things change depending on the audience's age. There's one called the grandparent scam. They're not going to call a 20-year-old um, and say that sure. their grandson is in, in Mexico in a prison. Um, but there are also uh, certain certain scams like tech support. You know, you would think that um, that would uh, target older people or victimize older people more often. But at least the data from maybe two years ago was suggesting otherwise. Uh, we have a digital native who gets a pop-up on his screen that says, uh, this is Microsoft, you've got a really bad problem here, I need you to click this link or call this number. They're going to do it because it's in their ecosystem. Oh, my daughter will do it in a heartbeat and she's 21 years old. She, she what? Oh, oh, I might not be able to watch TV tonight. Click. The other thing that comes to mind when I think about reporting scams, Kathy, and the problem of reporting scams is... I'm hyper aware of the fact that I'm getting these things. I report none of them. And the reason I don't report any of them is there's no one to report them to. If I called local police and they would say, what happened? I would say, attempted robbery. That's true, technically. But prove it. What about the Internet Complaint Center? The Internet Crime Complaint Center is FBI's domain. When you experience a cybercrime, that's where you're supposed to report it to the FBI. And if it's any other type of scam, you're supposed to report it to the Federal Trade Commission. But, oh, if it's Social Security, go to socialsecurity.gov and you can report it there. Or if it's telephone, go to the FCC. We have too many calls to action. And really, none of them are getting to a law enforcement response. And that's the problem. If the FBI were to take the complaints in real time that go into IC3, they have a process called Kill Chain from a, it's a, a asset recovery team that they have, where if they know soon enough about it, they can stop the money from leaving the bank. But they're not looking at it in real time, as I understand. They can report that they've, you know, clawed back, you know, tens of millions of dollars, but there's really no transparency in how that happens. How to get a, a victim who's lost money just yesterday connected in with them. There's just not a transparent way to do that. All right. Well, you're in a position to do something about this, Kathy. We are not. Well, Adam sort of is too. Actually, Adam, note to you, do something about this. Because we already have an organization in D.C. called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It already exists. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau would be in a position to create a system for reporting all of it, a warehouse. And it would be nice to get that warehouse. I don't care who does it and they can feed the FBI and the, and the Social Security Administration and everyone else, but there would be one place where it all gets reported, where it all makes sense. And logically for me, it is a consumer financial issue. I think a single reporting structure is definitely what we need. I think that if that doesn't come with 
funding to have the right amount of people, investigators, taking those cases as they come in and building cases for them, we're just going to be reporting to another place. What we need is a full of society response. And I've been working with a former FBI agent uh, named Brady Finta. He created an Eldorado Justice Group, let's call it, where when he was at the FBI and a supervisory special agent in uh, San Diego, California, he started having everyone across California send all the grandparent scam reports to them. And they were able to prove over a year or so that looking at the whole of state and not just one case at a time, they were able to tie all of these grandparent scam cases together and prosecute. And people went to jail. And so it is sort of the the uh, test of what now he and I are trying to bring forward, which is something we're calling the National Elder Fraud Coordination Center, which would be a 501c3. It would be publicly funded from Congress, but also privately funded from all of the industry players who say they really care about doing something about this. And I know many of them that do bring that funding together. All of those reports that are going all over the place right now, yeah, they can go wherever they go, but direct them also into this center. We get really smart data analysts who are doing what should be done, connecting cases that are like across the country, building the investigative case, and with also a requirement from Congress that the DOJ act on these cases, that investigative package goes to the Department of Justice and they have to dole it out to whether it's FBI or U.S. Postal Inspection or Homeland Security, but it must be investigated. No matter what the scam is, these criminals, some people call them fraudsters, they're not fraudsters, they're criminals. I really want to start calling these people criminals. They have known since time immemorial, and they share it widely, that to get a target to become a victim, there's this playbook, and it involves getting them into a heightened emotional state, whether that's fear or panic. Maybe it's excitement. I just won two million in a car from Publishers Clearinghouse. Get them into that heightened emotional state because as humans, this is how our brains work. When we're in that state, it is really hard to access logic thinking. So that is something that if people just understood better, then they wouldn't just immediately go, oh my God, how did they fall for that? If this criminal is able to get you into your fight or flight or freeze response, you're going to believe everything coming down that, um, that path. Well, it's the tricky thing too, because everyone, I think I can say without exception has some, has at least one thing that will trigger them consistently in that way. We constantly are self-criticizing the fact that we sort of help criminals on this show by talking about hypotheticals, but it is summer right now. It is hot. There is humidity problems everywhere. If I we're, you know, all I have to do is say, you know, hi, I'm from the HVAC company. I see that your AC just turned off. Click this link. Or um, this is your utility company and you haven't paid for the last yep. three months mm -hmm. and we need payment right now or we're shutting that HVAC off while it's 98 degrees and 100% humidity. Bang. I mean, my, my uh, kids right now are in a summer camp. And even though it's very close by, if I were to get a text saying like something's, something happened to one of your kids. 
that would immediately get the uh, get a little uh, adrenaline spike going that would probably make me a lot less objective. You know, there's probably an age breakout if we look at the FTC data. I'm less interested in that, um, except to focus on older adults and what and where the vector is for them. Um, but it and it also depends on the scam type. A lot of scams are still debit and credit card. Actually, they're higher than most. The reason is because the liability mostly falls to the the bank or the card issuer. Um, so you have some consumer protections there. If you're talking about um, loading money onto a gift card and, and reading the numbers off the back, money's as good as gone as soon as you've read that off the back. If it's cryptocurrency, as soon as you've shoved all that money into that Bitcoin ATM at the 7-Eleven, that money's gone. Peer-to-peer payment apps do not have the same protections as a credit card. You send the money uh, under duress, believing it's something else, or you're buying a car, or you've you know fat-fingered it and it's going somewhere else. You have to rely on the good nature of the person that you send it in error to to get that money back. So those are the things that we focus on because they're also so common because it's easy for the money to move quickly, um, you know, and especially if it's outside of the banking system, they're not going to flag anti-money laundering rules. Um, so there are all these ways sort of outside the system uh, that that drains all this money out. What are the strings attached ways of sending money? You just named a bunch of... Sh- you know, there's no strings attached. You cannot pull it back. What are the what are some ways to pay that allow you to claw it back if something goes wrong? You know, credit cards, debit cards also, but to a lesser degree. Uh, if you lose money to a fraud, or someone steals your wallet, or someone some, somehow intercepts your credit card number and uses it uh, fraudulently, your bank or your card company is responsible for those losses. They're, those those are their losses to begin with, right? You're basically taking uh, little micro loans every time you use your credit card. Um, and that's their money that you're playing with. So they're going to, they have lots of really, really great fraud controls that can, you know, use machine learning and algorithms to understand what looks out of character for you as the cardholder and shut it down. Um, and if they don't shut it down in time, as long as you report it in a timely fashion, you're going to get your money back. Debit card's a little different. It's the same rules, but that's your money, right? It's in your uh, linked checking account. And if someone gets a hold of that and wipes you out, the bank has to investigate. And it may take days, weeks, even longer for that investigation to be uh, uh, you know, finalized and to prove that you didn't do anything nefarious. But how are you paying your mortgage or buying food for your family? when that money is gone. Well, not only that, but oftentimes during this period of time, you're in a total panic and nobody will talk to you. (laughs) You keep calling going, is there any progress on my case? And it's crickets. We don't know. We can't tell. We'll get back to you, things like that, which only heightens terror for a lot of people. That's with payments that can be made whole when the losses are there. If you buy a gift card or many, which is usually the case, and read the numbers off and then realize almost immediately as soon as you hang up, oh, my God, this was a scam I'm remembering now because you're back, you know, you're off of that ether that they put you under. If you know who to call, whether it's the, uh, let's say it's a Target card and you've bought it at Target. If you go back into Target and you get the manager and they can help you, you may be able to grab money back off of that off of that card. It, as it turns out, the criminals are so good at all of this, 
that the, the money on these cards, the money in the crypto wallets are so voluminous that they're not immediately draining those cards or that crypto wallet because they right. don't have time. That gives an investigator time to claw back that money, but no investigator is doing it. So you've got to know, like if it's, if it's the gift card, you've got to know to be able to call. Well, the entire nature of a cryptocurrency using a blockchain means that you can actually track the transactions. You can see what um, what got deposited into what wallet. If there's a big enough uh, incident of theft there, that usually gives them enough uh, evidence to go on to coordinate that and to work with the whatever the uh, crypto exchange is. Yeah, I know a couple of people that are, are really pushing hard to train uh, law enforcement. There are specific tools that you need to go on blockchain and, and trace back where that money may have gone to. And then you need a, you know, a subpoena to the, the crypto exchange. But this is happening on a daily basis. People are getting their money or some amount of that back. And from what I understand from law enforcement, the crypto exchanges are generally being helpful because they don't want this happening on their platforms either. And is it going after the bad guys? No. And that's horrible. But... The big but is that person may get that money back. I think the uh, tricky thing too, though, is that happens a lot more often if it's a uh, million dollars or like $50,000. If you end up getting scammed out of uh, 500 bucks, uh, you're a lot less likely to have any kind of, um, you know, recourse there. And, uh, and sadly, you know, there are a lot of um, criminals online that are saying that uh, they're putting up a, a, a shop saying, hey, come to us and we'll help you get that money back. And they're criminals too. If you're ever looking for, uh, let's say, you know, it's a gift card payment scam and, and it's, uh, let's say it's Bed Bath & Beyond. Say you, you, you need to contact them right away and you Google Bed Bath & Beyond customer service. You know, there's a really high chance when you call that number, it's going to be a criminal that set up that ad. Because it's a sponsored, it's a sponsored ad and it's up top. Yeah, we've, we've seen that. Uh, one of the people in our show had that with Quicken. The time cost on this stuff is staggering. Um, if you're listening and you're thinking, that's a lot, it is. It is a lot. And you should spend the time regardless. There's, there's the amount of time you spend making sure that you have not been scammed or the victim of a crime. It's better to take the inconvenience and make sure you're okay than really get nailed. It's sort of a little bit about like inoculation. Like, <laughs> don't wait until it's broken. But... Um, uh, FINRA Investor Education Foundation did a study in 2019 with the Better Business Bureau, and they were able to prove out that if you know about a specific scam, you are 80% less likely to engage with it. 80%. And if you do engage, you're 40% less likely to lose money or sensitive information. So what that says is education really matters, and we all have to continue to lean into that. But the reality is, is we cannot educate ourselves out of this, which is why we need sort of a whole of society response, including a more meaningful law enforcement response to this. What are some of the red flags that, that people should be looking out for in order to better insulate themselves from becoming a victim of these kinds of scams? Well, we have red flags for about every scam and they're all a little different, which is why it's also confusing. So what I've been really trying to focus in on lately is, is sort of a trifecta of things. If you get a communication from out of the blue, unexpected, that um, it's uh, there's urgency to it and it puts you into a state of panic 
or fear or excitement. If those three things come together and any communication that comes your way, let that be the red flag. I don't know if we can beat our amygdala. (laughs) (laughs) If we could get this sort of ingrained in our head that this is the trifecta of a fraud, just completely disengage. So number one, anything that would make you impulsively respond, stop. And how do you do that when our impulse is already taken over? That's the big challenge, right? We cannot trust any form of communication we have. Phone scams are still huge. We can't trust emails with links. We can't even trust, we can't trust texts. And we can't even trust people that come to our door and say, hey, um, I see you uh, have some issues with your roof and I've got some stuff here. I was just down on your neighbor's property. Can I help you out? None of these things are, are safe. You know, in the old days, it used to be trust but verify. Today, it's never trust, always question, always verify. And you know what the worst trope is? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Who responds? Nobody's responding to that. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's a ridiculous string of words. Yeah, so both stop using that. I say it all the time, and I think that that is... It's perfectly good. I do think that people have developed emotional calluses to that particular formulation. Well, we we can't know if it's too good to be true if somebody has done a really good job making us believe. Like when I get, I don't know, I have, I have a 21-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old daughter. And so I'll just use that example. When they tell me that... It must have been a scammer that, you know, bought $20 worth of credits on Candy Crush. I don't believe them. And (laughs) I just keep drilling down until one of them tells me the truth. But if it's too good to be true, it's probably a scam. We're old enough to know we're not going to win the lottery. We're old enough to know that nobody's given us a free house and we don't have a long lost uncle who left us millions of dollars in Bitcoin. All we have to do is send a thousand and Bitcoin is proof of, you know, who we are. We've been around, but yet that part of your brain, the fight or flight part of your brain that reacts, it doesn't think, it reacts. That part of our brain, I don't think there's any answer to that. We need to be talking about this a lot more. Thank goodness for you guys who are doing this on the regular. We have to be talking to our family and friends about this too. So if anyone listening to this heard something that they didn't know before about fraud, Engage on that topic with your mom, your dad, your uncle, your sister, your brother, the person that uh, is next to the cube. Yeah, he may be annoyed, but then again, he may not um, uh, fall victim to the next uh, tech support scam. If we have this as part of our sort of daily conversation, I think that helps to inoculate. I think you're very right about that. I also think that a school setting is a good place also to have the conversation. Home ec. In the family and in the schools, when they had home ec classes in school, people actually learned how to balance checkbooks and things like that. I mean, these are the kinds of things, cyber hygiene, scam prevention, red flag identification, these kinds of things, everyone starting at a very young age really needs to understand. Your kids are never too young to understand about passwords and about what to look out for and the whole concept of who do you trust, who do you not trust. When you go online, these are conversations that have to have to occur on a daily basis. We have done an episode on the show where Adam admitted to not freezing his credit. I have two daughters 
who know this territory backwards and forwards, and yet they still use their mother's password on everything because it's the first password they ever had. It has not been changed for 21 years and 19 years, respectively. I am surrounded by people who know better, and the very best that I get is from my partner, who will now pretty much all the time send me things that she suspects might be fraudulent and says, is this fraudulent? And then I always say yes, because <laughs> if you have to ask, it is. What do we do about that level of inertia? And how do you, how do you tackle it? Because it's everywhere. People who know, people who are around people like us, who have been told, they still don't do the right thing in protecting themselves. And this isn't just in the fraud protection space. You know, we're, we have the sense that it'll never happen to us. Oh, I'm going to have that extra cheeseburger. I'm not going to get a heart attack. I'm, I'm pretty healthy otherwise, you know. Uh, yeah, I'll get to the passwords later. But boy, what a pain in the butt that is. I used to say, hey, get a, a password manager. These are really great and they are encrypted. And then one of the biggest one gets gets hacked. So you can't <laughs> tell people to use password managers when all their job was to protect your passwords and they failed. Yeah. Um, so y- you've got to take it upon yourself. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And it's also uh, one of the reasons why I get so frustrated when we when we blame people. Why is all of this on us as consumers? You know? Well, because we're in the Wild West. Because we're in the Wild West. There's no cops. But the businesses are being well protected, generally. The government is being well protected, generally. There is There are billions of dollars going into cybersecurity, into uh, detection, into, you know, infrastructure protection and all that kind of stuff. But it's not happening at the consumer level because, I mean, it's kind of hard to monetize. And I understand that. If you're going to create something that will help protect people from scams and you have to sell it to individuals, each individual is like, eh, that's never going to happen to me. You're a thousand percent right. The one phrase that I keep coming back to is that business still hasn't done enough, the government hasn't done enough, media hasn't done enough, that the ultimate guardian of the consumer has always been, currently is, and will always be the consumer. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, we have a shared responsibility as well, Uh, as much as we want everyone else to do more, and they should. We still are the ones, we click on the link, we open the attachment, we use dumb passwords, the list goes on and on and on. Doesn't mean that we should be shamed for this, but the fact of the matter is that we also have to step up our game. We do, and I I believe we all have our own responsibilities to to have you know to know what we need to do to protect ourselves. Um, but I also believe that if we foment change, we're going to get it. We're, if we talk to enough people in industry, if we talk to enough policymakers, if we make the case to enough um, uh, players in this world, we are going to get more protections. Look at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I mean, Elizabeth Warren's great conversation was always, when I started it, I was talking to one person. Then there were five, then there were 10, and it went on and on and on until we actually ended up with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So things can happen. As Jack Kennedy said, things don't just happen. Things are made to happen. 
And we all have to be part of the process of making things happen. And that's why we're so thrilled to have you on the show to talk about these things. And in, in an effort to talk about things that can happen for you, what are some of the things in addition to, you know, don't be impulsive, uh, what should what should people be doing? All of the things that you hear about um, with, you know, uh, media covers these stories all the time. Unfortunately, the headlines are usually, you know, uh, elderly woman scammed of 30,000 instead of criminal steals woman's life savings. We're working on that too with journalists. But when, when you when you read something and it's new to you, when you sign up for AARP's Fraud Watch Watchdog Alerts, and every other week when you get that, there's something that's new to you. Think about it, embrace it, tell your friends and family, talk about it. This is going to be a part of the solution. It may be a small part, of, but it's an important part because I really believe the more we talk about it, the more we essentially inoculate ourselves. And if we can somehow get into our brains that that the communication out of the blue that puts you into a heightened emotional state that demands urgent action, that's the fraud. Well, I think it's really important for our listeners to access the resources that you have, the AARP Fraud Watch Network. So where would they go to get it? AARP.org slash Fraud Watch Network. You can sign up for bi-weekly Fraud Watch alerts, watchdog alerts. You can read uh, weekly updated news on what's happening in the fraud world, but we also have a fraud resource center of like 80 tip sheets. If you don't know how the tech support scam works and you just heard it about it, go and look it up and then tell your friends and family about it. We also have victim support, so there's a helpline there. If someone that you know has experienced fraud and they just don't know what to do, call that number. You'll see it on there, 877-908-3360. You will get a human who will empathize in a non-judgment way, what hap- help you understand what happened and what to do going forward. Well, Kathy Stokes, we can't thank you enough for sharing your experience, your wisdom, your expertise on all of this. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show during those months that are big AARP fraud prevention months, which are in April and May, correct? April and May of every year, we pull out all the stops uh, and try to get the, the message out as widely as we can, depending on what the specific message is. This past year, it was gift card payment scams. Um, just to, you know, do what we can to get it, get that out into the ether. Well, we'll be seeing you next May then. All right, then. I will be expecting a call. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rose got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. 
Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash ADAM. And now it's time for our tinfoil swan. Our paranoid takeaway to keep you safe online. What's on your mind this week, Travis? Google ads, or more specifically, scams using Google ads. You're talking about the sponsored links at the top of the page when you do a web search. Is that right? Yeah, but let's back it up for a second because maybe not everyone knows what a Google ad is. Um, they're, they're not just the ads on Google where they are, but they're also, they're, they're across the whole platform of Google's property. So it's YouTube and, you know, sponsored links are a part of that. Yeah, it's entirely Google's bread and butter. It's just, it's pretty much how Google just monetizes their uh, search. Boy, this is adding up. Anyway, it's all powered or better laser focused by our own user data. Yeah, and uh, I mean, if you have a Google ad account, you can track who clicks or even interacts with your ads, and then you can target them on a really granular uh, level. Okay, so where are we going with this? What does this have to do with what the heck? Well, part of the appeal of Google ads is that you can get your ad to show up for like a specific keyword almost immediately. So if I'm say opening up a pizza shop in Brooklyn, it's gonna take a lot of time and energy and resources to actually have it show up when people in the area search for pizza, because there's just so much competition there. But if I put money into a Google ad and provided I'm paying enough. You'll be the first search result when someone goes looking for pizza. So if you're a scammer and you want to set up a bogus website to commit all kinds of cybercrime, I'm guessing. Yeah, you can get it at the top of a search result for something legitimate, and it looks legitimate. So what you think is going to be a link to a pizza place could uh, just instead take you to a fraudulent site that captures your credit card data when you place an order. Or it can direct you to download a coupon or a malware-infected file. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it could be anything. That's sort of the problem. Doesn't Google have any safeguards to stop this from happening? Kinda. I mean, there's an option to see who's paying for an ad, but that information can be uh, misleading or really easily faked. If you need to provide like a driver's license or state ID, you can fake either or Photoshop them or just get it for a couple of hundred bucks, maybe. 60 bucks. 60. But yeah. yeah. So a criminal could also use a stolen ID. Yeah, well, you can't expect people to check the credentials of every ad they see online. That's sort of the bottom line. Like, I don't really care about the whole ID thing. That's part of it, for sure. And there's crimes that are happening to do the crimes, crimes on crimes, kind of like Popeye's muscles. But the point of advertising online is to provide someone with an impulse to click without thinking too much about it, right? So this is sort of uh, scammer central. This is another example of security being the responsibility of the user, not the provider. And Google has the resources to do quality control here. So why aren't they doing it? I don't know. They have billions of dollars. So why haven't they given me one? Uh, what should people do, Travis? <laughs> well, I'm kind of loathe to say it since I've actually worked a lot with Google ads and it can be a great resource for small businesses. But until Google gets their act together and puts more guardrails, I just would recommend against clicking on a Google ad. So now are we talking just about Google ads here? Um, I'd say realistically the same thing about Bing or Facebook or really any other online advertising platform. There are scams on all of them right now. Yeah, but I mean, Google is definitely dominant in that ad space. How about just skipping the sponsored links up top? That's a good start. Regardless of the website or app, the appeal of online advertising is you can be sure that for the right price, your ad's going to be seen by a target demographic. And scammers love, and I mean love, being able to target demographics. Well, I'm still going to click, uh, but be careful. You guys are bonkers. Suit yourself. I'm yeah. going to continue to steer clear. I mean, when I see a great deal for a business or a product, I'll just go directly to that website rather than clicking on the uh, ad. If you don't want to have remorse, 
go to the source. Or just click links and deal with it when you get scammed. No biggie. That's our tinfoil swan. And that negates the very concept of the show. <laughs> what the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin.